entitled, What Were You Thinking? What Were You Thinking? Amen. Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 6. Have we got that slide up there? Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 6 says, Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. This verse was referred to or quoted quite a number of times last weekend at our retreat. And if you read the the book of Zechariah, you'll find that Zerubbabel was reminded in this verse that the challenge before him would not be overcome through natural strength and ability, but rather it would be a demonstration of the power of the Spirit of God. This is an Old Testament setting, but when we get to the New Testament, to the church age, to the age in which we live in, we are so very blessed to live in a time when the Spirit of God is poured out and we are filled with what the Scriptures called the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit, if you prefer a slightly more modern translation. Uh, Just as he did in Zerubbabel's day, God still moves mountains. Amen. He still does the miraculous. He still works in our lives. He works in our situations. And he brings about victory. Amen. I'm glad that he continues to demonstrate to us that it is still not by any might or any power that we possess, but that he is still the miracle worker still heals our bodies, still provides our needs, still opens doors in our lives, still is able to do things in our families, on our jobs, in our circumstances that are beyond our ability. Amen. He is still a miracle worker. Amen. I hope somebody in this place believes that this morning, that he is still a miracle worker. Amen. Amen. But not only does Jesus move in our circumstances and our environment, but he moves within us. He moves within us. And when we quote quote verses like Zechariah, we do so having that spirit that it speaks about there inside of us. Amen. As I was studying and preparing this message, I, I thought, I wonder what could happen if we wanted God to change us as much as we want Him to change our circumstances. Amen. We want God to change the environment but he's a little more interested in changing us. The Apostle Paul wrote in his last letter to the young man Timothy, and he said to Timothy in the first chapter of 2 Timothy that he remembered that Timothy had a family heritage of believers, that his grandmother and his mother were both women who walked in genuine faith. I don't know what about his dad or his granddad, but they're not mentioned. But his mom and his grandmother were mentioned that they were women who walked in genuine faith. And Paul said to Timothy, he said, I believe it's in you as well. I believe that faith is also in you. And in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 6, in continuing that conversation, Paul said, Wherefore, or because I believe that you have that same genuine faith, I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God has not given to us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Timothy, 
Paul said, God has called you to be his servant. He's called you to be a minister of the word of God. And it has been confirmed, the language of the King James says that it was confirmed by the putting on of my hands. Now, what that means is that Paul was saying that as Timothy's elder, when he laid his hands on him and prayed for him, he was confirming the call of God upon the younger man's life. The gift that Paul spoke of didn't come from Paul, it came from God. The calling and the anointing and the the direction that was on Timothy's life came from God. It did not come from the Apostle Paul. However, God uses spiritual leadership to confirm and endorse the callings that he places in our lives because we are a part of a body and we work together and that's how God has set it up. And I don't know all of the circumstances in Timothy's life, but it seems that Paul is responding to a reluctance that Timothy seems to have been feeling. He seems to have become reluctant to step into what God wanted for him. He's afraid to really take hold of what God has called him to do, even with the calling and anointing of God, combined with the laying on of hands of his elder, Timothy still had to choose to obey God by faith. I want you to understand this morning, it does not matter how much you hear the preaching of God's word, It does not matter how much somebody speaks to you or encourages you or teaches you, how many dreams and visions that God sends you. At some point, the dream lives and dies with your faith. The decision that you make that I will step by faith and do what God wants me to do and be who he wants me to be. And Paul said to Timothy, stir up that gift, Timothy. God has put something in you. Don't let it just lie there idly doing nothing. It's not meant to be passive. It's meant to be active. And Paul said, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid because God has not given us a spirit of fear. He has not given us a spirit of fear, but rather it is a spirit of love. It is a spirit of power. And it is a spirit of a sound mind. I want to focus on that last statement for just a moment, a sound mind. That expression is sometimes used in legal language, particularly when people write their will or they are writing very important legal documents. The document may begin with a statement that goes something along the lines of I, John Smith, or whatever name you prefer. I didn't think there was going to be John Smith here, so that was pretty safe. I, John Smith, being of sound mind, do make this declaration. Amen. The express the idea is that if you are of sound mind, you are able to think clearly and rationally and that you have the capability to make the necessary decisions that are being recorded in that will or in that document. Because after the, your demise takes place, if there is any hint of you not being in sound mind, somebody may decide to contest the will particularly if you happen. It's amazing how wills are contested more often when there's a lot of money involved. You know, if, if your parents didn't have much, people don't normally contest the will too much. Amen. Maybe just a coincidence. But that's the idea. But I, I don't think when Paul wrote to Timothy and said that God has not given us a spirit of fear but of power and love of a sound mind, I don't think he was too much worried about Timothy's last will and testament or any legal document that Timothy might have been involved in authorizing. But Paul said, the spirit, 
that God has given us does not produce fear. It does not produce fear. When we feel fear, it is not of God. It is not of God, but rather it is a spirit of love and of power and it contributes towards us having a sound mind. Fear, especially irrational fears, can cause turmoil in our minds. They can hinder our ability to think clearly. Many of us are familiar with the word phobia. A phobia simply is an extreme or an irrational fear. And there's a whole bunch of phobias, some more, I guess, we might consider them understandable, others a little bit more ridiculous. Like you can have a fear of people with beards. You can... There's, there's all different kinds of fears that you can have. Some make a little bit more sense. Some are like, that's, that's right off the edge. But the phrase, a sound mind, that appears in 2 Timothy chapter 1 is translated from a Greek word that only appears in the New Testament in this verse. This is the only place that that word appears. And its meaning is not that we are mentally stable. It's not that we are rational like we would normally understand it but when you look at that original word it incorporates in it the idea of discipline and self-control that's the, the underlying meaning of that expression a sound mind paul also wrote in another one of his epistles to a church in a place called galatia we know the epistle as galatians and he told them that our flesh everybody say i got flesh Amen. If we haven't done your funeral yet, you got flesh. He said that our flesh or our natural human will is going to struggle against the Spirit of God. He said there was going to be a conflict there. But he said, if you read Galatians chapter 5, that if we will walk in the Spirit, then we will not fulfill or we will not give in to the natural desires or the natural sinful lusts of our flesh. And then going on from that, he wrote to us in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, he said, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. And uh, we should maybe do a bit more teaching on that in the near future. But if we are walking in the Spirit, now we need to understand what that means. When we walk in the Spirit, that means it's daily. It's not a a once-a-week check-in at church. Some people, unfortunately, check in with the Spirit of God Sunday morning and then punch out when they leave and don't really stop to consider what the Lord may will for their lives until they come back the following Sunday morning. I'm glad that we, we allow the Spirit of God to move when we come into His house. I'm glad that when we worship, the Spirit of God moves and we respond to that Spirit. We allow the Lord to minister to us, but... It's got a whole lot more power if we take it with us and we walk in it throughout the week. Amen. So if we are walking in the Spirit, the Scripture tells us that we will grow fruit. The last fruit that is mentioned is temperance, or as most modern translations would interpret that, self-control. Now, we often teach about this particular fruit in reference to our speech and our behavior. Amen? We talk about how the Holy Ghost helps us to be in control of ourselves, to not just fly off the handle, to have some kind of restraint in our lives. And that is good. And that is true. But what if we have that around the wrong way? 
What if rather than it about being about things that are observed and measured, things that we can see and hear, that we understood this to actually be talking about being able to discipline our minds by the Spirit of God? If through the Holy Ghost and the Word of God our thoughts were disciplined, then surely our thinking would be deliberately directed as God desires. And it seems to me that this is probably the biblical model and that this would produce speech and actions that look like the fruit that we're supposed to grow. We so often measure what we see and, and hear rather than what's going on inside of us. Romans 8 verses 5 through 7 says, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is difficult. No, it's death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity or strong opposition and hatred against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. No, it's not very pleasant to think about your natural thinking being in opposition and hatred to God. We like to think we're nice people. The Bible says our natural mind, the, the unregenerated mind, the mind that is still living in sin, is in complete opposition to God. We're not just in a different lane on the same journey. We're going the complete opposite direction. Amen. There are two options, two outcomes. We're either thinking the way God wants us to think or we're thinking the way sinful flesh wants us to think. And unless our thinking becomes a sound mind... We will be in conflict with God in an ongoing way. You know, some people really struggle to serve God. The problem is not their actions. The problem is our minds. Because Romans 12 and 2 says, don't be conformed to this world. Don't line up with this world. Don't be designed and patterned and, and guided by the things of this world. But be transformed, be completely changed by the renewing of your mind that we may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Our mind must be renewed. And if you've walked with God for very long, you understand that never stops. Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, that ye put off concerning the former conversation or your old lifestyle, the old man, the old way of thinking and living, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, or it is corrupt because of the sinful nature that is naturally within us. And as you put that off in verse 23, you are then renewed in the spirit of your mind that you may be able to put on the new man. You can't put on the new man if the mind doesn't change. The old man's got to be put off. The mind's got to be changed if we're going to put on the new man. I'll tell you why. Because the flesh that isn't renewed doesn't like the new man very much. He's not very attractive to the flesh. The old man was very comfortable. But we've got to be renewed in our minds to put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. The simple facts are, if you're going to live victoriously for God, some things have got to be kicked out. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of of Christ. So when we, we go back to Paul, let's go back to what Paul said. The spirit that God has given us doesn't produce fear. It brings us power, which I don't know about you, but I need that to live victoriously over sin. It brings us love, which enables us to love others that we don't naturally love. 
and it brings us to sound mind. In other words, there's something that is supposed to happen in our relationship with the Holy Ghost that causes us to be able to discipline our minds. Because that's where the battle is. That's where, you know, we often talk about how in our society we're very blessed to live in Australia, and we certainly are. We don't face a lot of religious persecution. Now, there's more and more making its way into government, and um, without being negative, it's going to get worse, not better. That's what the Bible says. But you see, the reality is that even if we face persecution, even if we suffer because we are believers, whether or not you endure or you give up is going to happen here. So whether it's easy or it's hard, whether we're blessed or we suffer, the battle is in this squishy thing between your ears. That's where you win or lose. That's why it's constantly got to be renewed. Amen. And so for the next few Sundays, we're going to be looking at some areas of our thinking that are crucial in our relationship with God. And the first area that we're going to spend the rest of this morning on is how we think about God. We'll start with him, how we think about God. Thinking about God and considering our creator from the limitations of being a creature that he made is quite challenging because everything about us is limited. Everything about us is measurable and everything about him is immeasurable. And so as a limited creature, we're trying to comprehend our creator. That's pretty hard. The psalmist said in Psalm 8 and 3, When I consider thy heavens and the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visits him? When the psalmist wrote this, there were no telescopes, I don't think. That Really what you could comprehend of the heavens was with the naked eye. And so to sit out, on a hillside in, the, in Judea and look up into the sky. Now remember, we're talking about a time where there's not a whole lot of man-made light. So it's a little bit like when you go out into the desert here and get away from the towns and the cities and look up and see the majesty of creation and then try to comprehend man. That's the God that we're talking about. The writer of the old hymn, How Great Thou Art, in perhaps a little bit more modern language wrote similar words when he he wrote oh lord my god when i in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made i see the stars i hear the rolling thunder thy power throughout the universe displayed and then we all know the chorus and we're not going to sing it now but then sings my soul my savior god to thee how great thou art When we consider creation, there is something in us that responds to our creator. He just says, God, you are incredible. You are amazing. Amen. But even though completely comprehending a God without measure is really beyond us, we must, must bring him into our thinking. We must bring him into our consideration. And we must seek after him in our lives because Paul again wrote in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20 speaking about the church that we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord 
in whom you also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Now we reference these verses to remind us that our doctrine, that the things that we believe, the things that we preach and teach, must all be measured from the Word of God. They must all be measured from Jesus because He is the chief cornerstone. And I know possibly most, if not all of us, understand that concept, but in an old building, when it was built by, in, with stone, the first stone, the cornerstone, was the one they took so much care to get right because everything came off that cornerstone, which means that if Jesus is our chief cornerstone, everything must line up with Him. He is the standard by which everything is built. And we, 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 these verses are not strangers to us. The, the, those of us that have, have been in church for a while, we know these ver- verses. The church is built together, the scripture says, to be a habitation, a dwelling place. Not a visiting place, but a dwelling place. It is built so that it can be a dwelling place for God. That's why when we come together, we are careful about what is preached from this pulpit. Because it matters. Because what we preach and we believe impacts eternity. It does. Amen. Jesus didn't say, you shall know nice ideas and they shall set you free. He said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Now, we understand the truth is not a thing. It's a person. It's him. It's him and his word that makes us free. Amen. Can you imagine if each week we had a speaker, we had a preacher, we had a minister from a different faith come each Sunday morning. We had them on some sort of big wheel of rotation. What would we believe? What would we believe? If we then, after a year or so of that, had a meeting and said, what are our core beliefs? That would be a really interesting meeting. Trying to define, that's why we're careful. That's why, as the pastor, I don't just allow anybody to preach or teach here. Because what we believe matters. I'd like to hope you expect that of me. Who is Jesus? How are we saved? These questions matter. You know, I get phone calls. I got a phone call some time back from a man. He was, I I don't remember their names, but he was an assistant to a man who, I can't remember his name, he was a prophet of some sort. And he said, I'm ringing up to see if we can schedule prophet so-and-so to come and to preach in your church when he visits Australia. And I politely declined the invitation. I said, well, thank you for calling, but unfortunately we won't be able to to schedule whatever that gentleman's name was. I don't remember. It's been a couple of years. And he hung up the phone. I thought that was it. A moment or two later, the phone rang again. And this time, it was the man himself. And he was angry with me because I would not allow him to preach here. And I said, well, I'm sorry that you're upset. I said, but I don't know anything about you. I don't know what you believe. I don't know what you're going to preach. I, 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 I'm sorry, but my decision hasn't changed because we have a responsibility of what we preach here. Amen. Now, those, those passages we just read about from Ephesians chapter 2, that's talking about corporately, talking about the body, the church. You know, it's talking about that, 
that foundation. It's how the building is fitly framed together. We all grow together to be a holy temple in the Lord. We're built together. There's an emphasis on together if you're not seeing that. There's an emphasis on together. Why? That we would be a dwelling place for God, a place that God can live. But let's take that a step further and make it personal. Let's make it personal. Amen. Because the Bible tells me that our bodies are the temples of the Holy Ghost. So individually, we are to be temples of the Spirit of God and to come together corporately to be the household of faith. When, when, if you read the Bible clearly, there is an individual relationship we are required to have with God and a corporate relationship that we are required to have with the family of God. That's biblical. Amen. So our bodies are temples of the Spirit. I and you are dwelling places for the Spirit of God, which is corporate and individual. But here's the thing. There's a pulpit in your mind. There's a pulpit in your mind and you are in charge of who preaches there. Who's on the roster? (laughs) Is it the Word of God? Or is it our flesh? When we think about God, what do we think? If He is the chief cornerstone of our church, then He must also be, by natural process, the chief cornerstone of our minds. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we read verse 5. Let's wind it back and read verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to what? To the pulling down of strongholds. Now, in an old, an old world version of conflict and castles and all that stuff, a stronghold was like a little fortress. But you see, you don't wake up in the morning in your house, walk out the front door and somebody's built a stronghold or a fortress in your driveway. That's not how it works. In the spiritual context... Strongholds get built where? In our minds. That's where they've got to be examined and if not lining up with that cornerstone, torn down. The psalmist said in Psalm 48 and 12, we used to sing this as a chorus when I was growing up. He said, walk about Zion, go round about her and tell the towers thereof. That means we are to consider the kingdom of God, to talk about the power and the strength of God. It's saying go around and and consider how powerful God is. But if we're doing that and we see a tower as we go around that isn't on the plan, that doesn't line up with the chief cornerstone, it's got to be cast down. If it's not in the blueprint, it doesn't belong. If it doesn't line up with the cornerstone, it doesn't belong. Amen. When you think about God, what do you think? Because it matters. It matters. I'll tell you a few things. It's not an exhaustive list, but a few things we need to be thinking about. He is holy. Now, in a lot of Christendom, people would put he is love before he is holy. But his holiness is probably the first quality of his identity. He is holy. That means he's perfect. 
He's righteous. He's sinless. He's flawless. He is full of light. There is no darkness in him. There's not even the shadow of turning, the Bible says. He is a holy God. He is the king of kings. Not a king, the king of all kings. The scripture makes it clear that in heaven there is one throne, that all will bow before him. All will bow before him. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I am so thankful for his goodness and for his mercy that that is an experience that we can practice right now. So when humanity surrounds the throne of God, there will be people that already know what his presence feels like, already know who it is that's sitting on the throne, that it will be second nature for us to kneel and bow and worship him. But there will be others that it will be the first time. And for them it will be too late. When we think about God, he is all-powerful in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was void. It's hard for us to comprehend. It's kind of like an expanse. And God spoke. And instantly, creation began. Instantly, there's light. Then you've got planets and stars and suns and moons and seas and dry lands and atmosphere and mountains and valleys and trees and critters and eventually an image creature, a man, and not too long after that, a woman made in the image of God. He is all-powerful. He speaks and things happen. He still speaks to creation and it obeys his voice. When you think about God, you need to remember that he is the only true God and that he is one. There is none beside him. He is by himself He is all-sufficient. The Scripture makes it clear that He created everything on His own. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Amen. You know, there are some things that if we get these things settled in our mind, it will change the way that we worship. In the midst of all that awe and wonder, in the midst of that power and majesty, almost seemingly contradictory, he is also love. First John 4 and 16, And we have known and believed the love that God has to us. God is love. He that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. He's not just incredible and powerful and, and holy, but he is also love. He is merciful. He is merciful. If he was not, we would not be here this morning. But he is merciful. He is full of grace. And as we considered in our Bible class today, Jesus is the perfect balance of justice and mercy. Justice and mercy. For some people, they live in fear of God because their thinking is imbalanced and they only consider his glory, his majesty, and his judgment. To people like that, God is terrifying. He's distant. He's overwhelming. He's somebody to be afraid of. At the other end of the spectrum, there are others who ignore His majesty and speak only of grace and kindness, treating God with a familiarity that is casual 
that almost reduces him to the status of a personal assistant or a kind grandfather that gives them whatever they want. To them, God is just too nice to judge anybody. He would never do that. You see, what we think about God matters. What we think about God matters. Now, when we grasp in our limited capacity, and we've all got a limited capacity, I don't care how smart you think you are, when it comes to God, we have a limited capacity. But when we grasp that Jesus is both holy and loving, he is righteous and he is kind. He is majestic and he is merciful. He is all-powerful and he is full of grace. He is the King of Kings and he is our Redeemer. He is both our Creator and our Savior. When we can comprehend that he will never ever compromise his holiness, but that his love for us was such that it made a way to satisfy judgment and redeem us. It should change how we think, how we live, and how we worship. What we think about God matters. It matters because really, as believers, that's where it begins. That's where it begins. And, you know, when we begin to comprehend that he is this all-powerful, eternal, self-existent, the, the, there are not enough words to really try to describe, and although we, we do our best, we never ever even come close to describing his majesty, how the light shone in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not, how, how evil flees from him how everything will bow down and worship him. And then we take that in one hand and in the other hand we read in the second chapter of Philippians how he took upon himself the form of a servant, made himself of no reputation and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That seeming contradiction is perfectly joined together in who Jesus is. And when we think about him that way, it ought to cause us to worship him. It ought to cause us to acknowledge his majesty but be so overwhelmed with gratitude for what he's done. Stand with me if you would this morning. I wonder if we could just ask the Lord to help us to adjust our thinking of who he is. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you.